بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير اللهم إنا نجعلك في نحورهم ونعوذ بك من شرورهم يا رب العالمين يا قوي يا عزيز الحمد لله We've spent the last few weeks talking about the battle of Al-Ahzab also known as the Battle of Khandaq, the Battle of the Trench, or the Battle of the Confederates, where multiple forces came together to march upon Medina and try to extinguish the light of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and defeat the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa and the Muslims once and for all. And last week we talked about how ultimately it fizzled out. You would think that with 10,000 troops on the other side of the trench that it would eventually turn into a major battle. But there was nothing of the sort. It was just a few skirmishes at the end of the day. And after that fierce storm, they lost their will to fight. Their Their morale was sapped and their will to fight was sapped. And so they decided at the lead of Abu Sufyan to head back home. So it was a very underwhelming defeat, if you can put it that way. It was anti-climatic, you could say. So we spent the past three to four weeks talking about that battle and how it ended the way it did. And just, we want to give some brief analysis of why it ended that way before we go to part two of the Battle of Ahzab, which is really a continuation of it, although it's listed as a separate Ghazwa. So first, we know that the Quraysh and Banu Ghattafan, in their large numbers, thought that with their massive size, they would be able to descend upon this smaller force in Medina and easily crush them. Now, they weren't trained as a military. These were tribesmen, and they engaged in war the way tribesmen would engage in war which is quick, fast, lightning action on cavalry or on foot, uh, defeating the enemy and grabbing whatever spoils they can grab and heading back home. That was a typical Arabian warfare of the day. So they didn't come with the intention of a long-standing siege. They came thinking it would be like a typical raid that they grew up doing. So when they came, they found this trench. And this was a huge problem for them because that means they have to wait for the opportune time and look for a weak point. And now it becomes a waiting game. And as they're waiting, you understand, they, they have to eat. Their animals have to eat. If you're going to have strong cavalry, they have to eat. So they consume most of the food by the time they arrived in Medina on the way there. And getting there, they expected that this would be a short battle and they would be able to take their camels and horses out to graze around Medina. But there's one problem. To their shock, Quraysh saw that the Muslims had harvested and taken 
all the straw. They collected all the straw and brought it to their own areas, leaving those open areas more or less desolate with not much to eat for their horses and camels. So they're forced to go further and further outside of Medina to allow their animals to graze just so they could be fed. And they find areas that the camp, where the camels can eat, thorny bushes and the like, but the horses can't eat that kind of stuff. So the horses are getting hungry. They're getting hungry. They're having to ration the resources. And very soon, the horses would consume all of the, the uh, barley, and they say corn, although it wasn't corn, it was sour gum. They would consume all of the feed for the horses. So Al-Waqidi, in his seerah, his maghazi, he says, after this, starvation immediately began to destroy the horses of the Ahzab. This is a huge problem for them. Now, when we go back to the Muslim side, what was the ghazwa prior to this ghazwa? Uhud. So where there was a lack of discipline at Uhud, and where there was a desire to pursue ghanima at Uhud, there was discipline during this ghazwa, and there was no pursuit of ghanima. It was all about survival. So the Muslims were very focused in digging the trench, in the roving patrols, in stand, standing on guard to avoid letting Quraysh come in past the trenches. So the fact that there's no sustained battle that we read about, like we do Uhud and Badr, what that means is that the trench worked. It worked. If there was no trench, then we can reason that the Quraysh and Ghatafan would have swooped down upon Medina from the north and led a very powerful raid uh, against a vastly uh, outnumbered force. And who knows what would have happened. So the fact that it was just skirmishes tells you that the trench actually worked as a tactic. And when the storm came, that we talked about last week, the storm didn't impact the Muslims as it impacted Quraysh and Ghatafan. And why is that? They still had houses. And of course, they're in roving patrols and they're taking turns and they're out there having to brave the weather. But they can take breaks. They can send groups home or into different homes and they can get a reprieve from the severe weather. Meanwhile, Quraysh is isolated. All of their tents have fallen. All of the tent stakes have been pulled up from the winds. All of their fires have been put out. All of their pots have been overturned. They're out there exposed in the elements, in the dark. And it's overwhelming. So this is what we talked about last week. So when they decided to leave, Hudayfad brought that news back to the Prophet and he said never again will they attack the Muslims now we shall launch an attack and they will not launch an attack against us and this is recorded by Imam Ahmad in his Musnad and he is telling us that this is the last time Quraysh or whoever is allied with them is going to try to mount an offensive, preemptive attack against the Muslims. From this point forward, it's going to be preemptive on the Muslim side, and they're going to be on the reactive side. And that's exactly what played out, as we see in the seerah. So this battle 
ended after 20 or so days after the siege when Quraysh and Ghatafan left. After the battle ended, the Prophet and the Muslims returned to their homes to set down their arms and take off their armor and get a much needed break, much needed rest. But subhanAllah, the battle was not over for the angels. The Muslims thought the battle was over, but it was not over for the angels. And now we come to the next part of this discourse, which is Ghazwatu Bani Quraydah, which we can see as an extension of Ghazwatul Ahzab. It's an extension of the Battle of the Trench, although it's grouped as a separate battle because it was, but it is causally linked to Ghazwatul Ahzab. So we're going to divide this discourse into two sessions. Today's session is everything in the lead up, and the second session is in the uh, application of the hukum. That's next week, inshallah. So we go to the seerah, and we read the narrations which mention that at Zuhur time, at noon, the Prophet ﷺ goes to the house of Umm Salama radiallahu anha, and he takes down takes sets down his arms and takes off his armor. And as he's doing this, after 20 days of sustained conflict, the angel Jibreel alayhi salam appears. He appears in a form. And the hadith says that he was wearing a silken turban and the end was between his shoulder blades. And he approached the house from the outside upon a mule which had a leather saddle and a silk cushion. And one narration says that the, the, the mule had armor plating around it on the sides, and that the dust from the previous battle was still in its teeth, meaning it was freshly used. It's just coming from combat. The angel Jibreel appears like this. And by the time he arrives at the house of Umm Salama outside, Rasulullah had set down the armor, set down the weaponry, he had gone and taken a ghusl, he had taken a bath, he bathed himself after days and days of fighting. And Jibreel salam asks Rasulullah Have you put down your arms, Ya Rasulullah? He says, Yes. And Jibreel says, As for the angels, we have not put down our arms since the enemy arrived, and we've just returned from pursuing them. Now you may wonder. Pursuing them, I thought they left. But you understand there's also combat going on in the jinn realm too. So there's all sorts of things in the seen and the unseen. They were participating in that battle. He says, we've just returned. And Allah orders you to march to Banu Quraidah. To march to Banu Quraidah. He says, I'm heading there right now and I'm going to shake their forts. So the war isn't over. This is the continuation of Ahzab. Now, at this time, what time, what time is this? This is around Duhr time. This is in the winter, right? And you all know that in the winter, the time between Duhr and Asr is much shorter than in the summer and spring. So it's at Duhr time. He receives this instruction conveyed by the angel Jibreel to march on Banu Quraidah. So he sends out a munadi, someone to call out to the people and announce 
that whoever hears this and is obedient, let him not pray Salatul Asr except in Banu Quraida, except there in the tribal area of Banu Quraida at their fortress. So at this point, the Prophet puts on his armor again and he goes on a mule without a saddle. And this, this mule is called Ya'fur, it has a name. It has no saddle. And he goes to Banu Quraida on this mule. As he's leaving, he appoints Abdullah ibn Umm Maktoum in charge of Medina. And as he's leaving, he gives the raya, the battle standard, to Sayyidina Ali ibn Abi Talib, Karramallahu Wajha, who's the first to arrive at Banu Quraida, by the way. So uh, Sayyidina Ali heads out before anyone else. He has the raya, the flag bearer, Hamidur Raya. Now, if you look at Banu Quraida and where it's located, it's now in, it's like, it's like a two-hour walk, right? You could, it's, you, could, you could drive there now, but if you're walking, it's going to take you about two hours. So this command came after Dhuhr, and it's in the winter. So if you factor in two hours of walking time and the time it takes for everyone to get their weapons and their armor back on, there's a sense of urgency conveyed by the angel Jibreel and so the Prophet ﷺ also conveys that sense of urgency by telling the community, let no one pray until they reach Banu Quraidha. Hurry up. This is the idea, uh, according to the soundest view. So, and that opens up another discussion. This is a very famous hadith that is discussed in our legal tradition. Because it's two hours away, it's after Dhuhr. Do you think they're going to get there at Asr? Uh, or would they have enough time to get there before Maghrib? You know, this is the issue. The sense is, is a sense of urgency. So we know that a group of Sahaba, as they were all leaving in groups, a group of them decided to pray Asr on the road because they felt that they're not going to reach there in time. They're going to get there at Maghrib, which means they would have missed Asr. So one group of them prays Asr on the road. Another group of the Sahaba said, no, the Prophet ﷺ said, don't pray Asr except at Banu Quraidha. So we're not there yet. When we get there, we'll pray. Even if it's at Maghrib time and the time of Asr is actually ended. So, you know, they're discussing this back and forth. They disagreed about it. So one group prayed on the road. The other group prayed when they got to Banu Quraidha. And when they all met up with the Prophet ﷺ, they mentioned this to him. He didn't rebuke either side. He didn't say, you're right and you're wrong, or you're wrong and you're right. And this incident illustrates a very important feature in Islamic law and the nature of differences in Islamic law. Because they're going in batches, there's a sense of urgency, and there's a different interpretation of the words of the Prophet ﷺ. There are those who took it literally, where they say, he said, don't pray until we get to Banu Quraidha. We're not going to pray until we get to Banu Quraidha. The other group is not understanding the command literally. They're understanding that it is conveying urgency. Because the asal, the default, is that you pray in the appropriate time. So we're going to pray on time, 
And when he says, don't pray also except there, it's a way of saying, hurry up. Right? So this is where they differed. So there's a few important lessons here. Uh, number one, these differences between the Sahaba on the issue of whether they pray Asr Banu Quraidha or pray it on the road, this difference is reflected in the differences within the Sunni legal schools, al Madahib al Arba. Because you have in the four legal schools, and there were many before, but the four existent legal schools that we have, you have the school of Imam al-Shafi'i rahimahullah and the school of Imam Ahmad rahimahullah and they are very textualist in their approach I don't want to say literalist as a pejorative it's not a pejorative here but they're literalist in the sense that they're very textualist in their approach on the other hand you have the madhab of Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah ta'ala as well as, to a very large extent, the madhab of Imam Madik, Ibn Anas, rahimahullah. And they are very much focused on the ratio legis, looking at the text and trying to understand what is the illah, what is the legal rationale behind the statement. And those differences between what we call broadly the Ahlul Hadith and the Ahlul Ra'i, those differences within our legal schools are seen in this incident. So those who prayed on the road, they're taking the approach of looking at the illa. What's the rationale behind that statement? It's an encouragement to hurry up. Because we have an asl already, which is that you pray on time. You, the prayer is at a set time. The other side is very textualist. Those who decided to pray only at Banu Quraidha, even though they're praying asr there as qada, as a makeup at Maghrib time, they are applying the statement literally. And they're not looking at the, rash, the, the, the ratio legis, the, the, the illa behind the ruling. Both of these approaches are broadly acceptable and valid in our legal tradition. And that's the first point. The second point is that these are people of uh, great learning. Not all of the Sahaba were mujtahidun, but among both sides you have mujtahidun. And when the mujtahid, the person of... Uh, deep learning makes an educated judgment once he's made that judgment he's not actually allowed to follow the judgment of the other side blindly without knowing the basis for their rule or their decision like he has to commit to his own ijtihad number three is we have the usuli issue which is is every mujtahid correct or or is there only one correct position, right? The majority of the scholars of Usul say, no, the, the truth is going to be one. So one of these sides is correct, and one is wrong. That's, that's the majority position. We don't say that they're both right in an absolute sense. They're both correct insofar as they exercise their best judgment to understand and apply the words of the Prophet but fi nafsil amr, yani in, in reality, there is one side that's correct and one side that's incorrect. But as we know from the hadith of Rasulullah if a mujtahid makes an, uh, in a, his best effort to arrive at a judgment and he is correct, he receives two rewards. And if the person makes the best effort to arrive at a judgment and he's incorrect, he receives one reward. So the correct mujtahid, he receives the reward for making the ijtihad, 
you know, attempting to understand and apply the text, and they get the reward for you know, the actual thing itself. Those who make the judgment and they get it wrong, they get reward for at least making the effort. Right? So we do believe that one side is right, one side is wrong. However, some of their ulama have said that uh, you know, because Rasulullah was silent, he didn't say this one's right or this one's wrong. He just let them both go and didn't correct one or say the other is right. Some of the scholars say that because uh, it, the reason why he did that is because it was seen as a kind of one-off event. It's not something likely to happen again and again and again. And some of the ulama say that if it was likely to happen again and again and again, that would require that the Prophet ﷺ clarify, this is what you do in this case, A or B, and not both. But because it was a one-off event and they're all here and everyone's prayed now, let's move past that, we go on. You did your best and here we are, right? So the question now, they've all now eventually arrived. when they prayed it on the road or they prayed when they got there. The question is, why go in the first place? The angel Jibreel told Rasulullah that the angels are prepared, they're still in their armor, and that they should head out quickly to Banu Quraydha. But why? As we mentioned before, Banu Qaynuqa violated the treaty and they were expelled. Banu Nadir plotted assassinations violated the treaty in different ways, and they were expelled. Banu Quraidha, here we are, the final tribe of the three tribes. They too violated the treaty. We discussed last week how they shredded the treaty, they shredded this, and they agreed to put their arms in support with Quraysh and Ghatafan and to join in as a southern front where the Quraysh and Ghatafan are in the north and they're coming from the south. Now, one point to mention, I didn't mention this last time. The narration which mentions the shredding of the document, that document is not the original mithaq of Medina that was established right after the hijrah with the Jewish communities, the Jewish tribes. This mithaq that they ripped up was the more recently updated mithaq that was done when the Muslims were sieging Banu Nadir because we mentioned how during that siege, Rasulullah went with some of the Muslims to Banu Quraidha to renegotiate the terms to secure their allegiance after what Banu Nadir had done. So that document, it wasn't some distant document from a few years prior that they forgot about. They recently ratified it and agreed to it a second time with more detail. That's the document that they're shredding up. So now, the fact that, you know, the fact that they backed out because we know they didn't actually fight. The fact that they shredded the document, violated the treaty, agreed to join forces with Quraysh and fight, the fact that they backed out doesn't absolve them from the crime. Because they conspired and planned and took all these steps just short of actually going out in the battlefield. So the violation, not going out, does not absolve them from this. And the Prophet ﷺ cannot risk this happening again. Because, and this also explains why it was so quick. Because imagine you let that slide for six months to a year. 
what's likely to happen. Let's say, you know, they violate the treaty and nothing happens for a year. What may happen in that year? They may renegotiate terms with Quraysh again, plot and plan again, and do things behind the scenes, just as Banu Qaynuqar did, just as Banu Nadir did, and that cannot be tolerated because that will be a great risk in the future. They had to act now. They had to be very decisive. Now, one of the interesting things you find in the seerah is that, okay, Banu Quraidha, they signed the new ratified treaty when, the, when Banu Nadir was being sieged. And when Quraysh were making their way north and the Muslims were digging the trench, we find a very interesting narration in the seerah works. Banu Quraidha during that time actually contributed shovels and buckets for digging the trench. So, you know, they're still living up to their side of the bargain up until Quraysh arrived. So, although Quraysh did not, uh, sorry, Banu Quraysh did not attack during the Battle of Khandaq, this symbolic ripping up of the treaty cannot be overlooked. Now, you have Ibn Ishaq, and then you have Ibn Hisham after him, and you have other seerah works. You have standard seerah works. Then you have less standard seerah works. And one of those less standard ones, but nonetheless a respected one, is a work by Imam al-Samhudi. Uh, and his is a work on the history of Medina. So it's not exactly a seerah work independently, but it does touch on the seerah because it's all about the history of Medina from the time of the seerah onwards to his time. So in Imam al-Samhudi's work on the history of Medina, he presents a very interesting narration. In that narration, it mentions that Quraidha, Banu Quraidha, responded to a secret request from Abu Sufyan to secretly help the Quraysh by selling them urgently needed food and fodder for the animals. Remember, they were in trouble with the animals and they're running low on food. And they, so one narration says that Abu Sufyan sent a message there to make a deal with, with Banu Quraidha to get material support for the war while they were on the other side of the trench. And that Banu Quraidha agreed to this for the money. And they were gathering some food and fodder and water and they were going to hand this over. And as they were getting these supplies together, the narration says that it just so happened, as these things always happen to unfurl, right? It just so happened that some Muslims of Banu Amr bin Auf, which was a nearby area, they were just happening to arrange a funeral nearby when they saw dozens of camels that were loaded with wheat and barley and dates and straw going from Banu Quraidha headed towards Quraysh. And these Muslims did the brave thing and the right thing in that moment is, and they engaged in a spontaneous contact battle. So there's a, you know, a number of them attending this funeral. They see this they get their arms and they go and stop this in an immediate contact battle. They seize those camels and they chase off the person escorting the camels. And what do they do with the food? They bring it to the Prophet ﷺ and the Muslims who then distributed it to the hungry army. Now, what do we call that in a legal sense? Legally, that's considered material support. When you give material support to the enemy, that is a clear violation of the contract. So if we take the narration of Samhudi, it wasn't just the ripping up of the contract and the conspiring to join, 
it was also giving material support to the enemy in a time of battle, which is very dangerous. So that's why, and as for the urgency, we said, well, there's an urgency because there's a chance that they could renegotiate with Quraysh and other tribes and work their way into some new deal that could jeopardize the Muslim community once again. So the Prophet does not want to give them that time to rebuild these now somewhat damaged relationships with Quraysh. Because, you know, they left on a sour note. But if you give them time, they could repair it. He couldn't let that happen. So that's why they came so quickly. So we come now to the siege itself. Banu Quraydha, as we said, like the other tribes, they lived in uh, these compounds, these large walled compounds. Fi Quran muhassana. So they're in these compounds. The first to arrive at Banu Quraydha was who? Sayyidina Ali, karramallahu wajha. He arrives first. And he gets there with a group of some muhajirun and ansar. And he plants the raya in the ground. And they can see from the compound exactly what's going on. You don't bring a raya for a casual conversation. You bring the raya because it is a battle flag. That is a very strong symbol. And they know exactly what's going on. So they see this raya as soon as they see the battle flag from within the compound. What do they begin to do? They begin to shout insults to the person in honor of Rasulullah And subhanAllah, history doesn't really change. Wallahi, history does not change. It's just the same patterns repeating in different iterations. In the times of the Crusades, when Ibn Athir mentions this, as does uh, uh, others, when the Muslims would be outside of a compound held by the Crusaders, you know, this is called siege warfare, Hisar. It's a waiting game because you don't know how much food and water they have. How long can they hold out inside of the compound? So the best you can do is stay outside and wait for them to run out of food and water until they surrender. That's the best option. So in uh, Ibn Athir's work of history, he talks about the Crusades. And he mentions that whenever the Muslims would come upon a compound by the, by the Crusaders and they would siege it, they would always know when victory was close at hand. It's a waiting game, but they would always know when the victory was coming very, very soon. And that is when they would begin to hurl insults about the Prophet ﷺ. Because Allah Ta'ala yantaqim. Allah Ta'ala creates openings. And that's what would happen typically. After they do that, they know that, oh, the time is near. Something's going to happen. Someone's going to capitulate. Some opening is going to happen. Some way, somehow, this is going to end, either in their surrender or it comes to a head in combat. But by them hurling the insults, that's usually the sign of them having run their full course. So interestingly, Badun Quraydha, they didn't even wait days for that. They just started right out of the gate, just shouting, shouting insults. So Sayyidina Ali, radiallahu anhu, he's there hearing this, and he's quiet at first. And then he says, after hearing these insults, he says, Bainana wa bainakum is safe. Between us and you is the sword. It's just 
It's come to this, and that's the reality of life. So Ali is there, along with some Muhajirun and Ansar. The Prophet وسلم, along with some other Muslims, are making their way. First it was about 36 people. They're making their way there. And as the Prophet وسلم, is making his way there, he passes by some people on the road to Banu Quraidah. And he asked them uh, if they saw anybody pass. Did you see anybody? Now, Ali is already well there. He's there now for a while. He's asking people in the streets, have you seen anybody pass? And then some people start to say, yes, we saw Dihya al-Kalbi pass. Who is Dihya al-Kalbi? Dihya al-Kalbi is a Sahabi, but he was known as one of the handsomest of the Arabs. And that was the physical form that the angel Jibreel would frequently take. When he would take a human form, he would look very much like Dihya al-Kalbi, who was the handsomest of the Arabs. Uh, one of the great Andalusian scholars said that the reason why the angel Jibreel would take the form of Dihya al-Kalbi uh, is that he would always present himself when in a human form, he would present himself in the handsomest of forms before Rasulullah so they're saying, we saw Dihya al-Kalbi, but it was actually Jibreel When he finally reaches Banu Quraidah, Ali immediately goes to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and he says, Ya Rasulullah, please camp over here. Don't come so close to the compound. Camp over here. And Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam asks him, why? And Ali says, you know, he doesn't want him to hear what they're saying. And Ali is kind of hesitant to even explain what's going on. He doesn't want to repeat the words. So he's asked why, but he's, he's not really saying why. And then the Prophet ﷺ said, perhaps they're saying things about me. And Ali says, yes, they are, Ya Rasulullah. And then he says, once they see me, they won't be able to say those things. Once they see me, they won't be able to say those things. So instead of taking Ali's advice to set up camp further away, he set it up outside of the compound, right in front of the fortress, so that he could hear them and they could hear him. And as he set up in front of this compound, he begins to address Banu Quraidah. And he says, Ya Ma'ashar al-Yahud, did not Allah humiliate you? Has not the ghadab of Allah come upon you? And the, you know, Banu Quraidah is not used to hearing this very true but severe language from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. It's true, kalimatu haqq, but it's said in a way of force. They're not used to hearing. And so they said, Ya Abu al-Qasim, you, you were never one to act foolishly, you maybe speak in a way or act in a way that others would perceive to be rash. And it's a way of them saying, please stop, you know, don't, don't continue like this. And that was it. So initially, as we said, Rasulullah arrives with 36 other fighters. Ali عنه, is there already with some of the Muhajirun and the Ansar. And soon as more and more groups of the Sahaba arrive, some praying Asr on the road and some waiting to pray Asr there at Banu Quraidah. 
eventually you have 3,000, the same number of people who were there as fighters for the Ghazatul Ahzab. So 3,000 people are there carrying the same armor they had for 20 days, carrying the same weapons they had for those 20 days. And we find a really interesting narration that is recorded by uh, Ma'amar ibn Rashid in his Maghazi, which is a very early seerah work. He mentions that this siege of Banu Quraidah, which lasted about 15 days or 15 nights, one narration says 25. Uh, Ma'abad ibn Rashid mentions in his Maghazi that during that siege, the Prophet invited Banu Quraidah to Islam. And he cites the narration from Zuhri, an early authority in the Seerah and Maghazi, who says that he called them to accept Islam before he waged battle against them. But they rejected, they refused. So, this is not mentioned in other Sira works, but Quraidha, Banu Quraidha were very acutely aware that if they became Muslim, all of this would end. Because Islam wipes away the sins that came before it, it would be a clean slate, they would retain their lands, retain their properties, retain everything, the slate would be clean, all would be forgiven, and they would be welcomed to the broader Muslim community. They knew that because there are converts from these tribes. And they knew that by becoming Muslim, it also means they have to give bay'ah to him, to pledge loyalty to him, but that would ultimately save them. So as the siege continued, pressure mounted on Banu Quraidah inside. There was no pressure on the Muslims. Why? Why don't you think? There was any pressure. Think about siege warfare. They're close to home. Exactly. If you're, doing, if, you're, if you're doing siege warfare, you're very far from home. You need to have a very good supply line or access to resources. But if you are doing a siege of a place that's two hours walking from your home, you're fine. You have all your resources. You could do this all day, every day. It just becomes a waiting game. So during that time, the Muslims are relaxed and outside and waiting. Meanwhile, the pressure is mounting for those inside the fort of Banu Quraybah. As that pressure is mounting day after day, finally the leader of Banu Quraybah, Ka'ab ibn Asad al-Quradi, he speaks to his people inside. Trying to exercise some measure of leadership, he speaks to them and gives them three options. These three options are recorded in the hadith. He speaks to them and says, you know what has befallen you. And whose fault was all this, by the way? It was his fault. He is the one who brought this on them. But here's the thing. It's not that they're being punished for a crime they didn't commit. They joined in. Because they have a policy that even if we disagree, and for, for a sake of unity, we'll go along with what the majority are doing, even if it's wrong. I'm, that's, literally, that's literally a principle they have. So they went along with it. They went along with ripping up the treaty and supplying Quraysh. So they're all in on this. So Ka'ab ibn Asad says to them, you know what's befallen you. So I give you three choices and you should choose whichever you wish. Choice number one, 
that you follow Muhammad and believe in him, for by God it has been proven to you that he is the appointed prophet, and he is the one you find in the scripture, and you know his description. Believing in him will secure your lives, your wealth, and your families. This is the easiest option. Do something that you already know is true. So how did they respond? His tribesmen said, Indeed, we find him in the scripture, but we will never leave the rulings of the Torah or exchange it for another book. It's just stubbornness. Uh, you know, here's the point, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks to the collective. Ya ayyuhalladina amanu. He also speaks to other collectives. Ya bani Israel. He also makes exceptions. Laysu sawa'a. But Allah Ta'ala is addressing people of intelligence. Ulul albab, ulul absar, al-alimun, al-mutawassimun, people of intelligence who are able to abstract, to understand that a collective statement doesn't automatically implicate certain exceptions to that. You know, it's, it's not an intelligent thing to hear a collective statement and then say, oh, well, this person is not. That does not disprove the collective statement, right? If I say that, for example, uh, men on average can bench press more than women, that is, a that is a statistically true statement. That's not disproven by someone saying, well, this woman can bench press more than the average guy. Yeah, that's true. But how does that disprove the general statement, right? So that's not an intelligent response. Allah addresses the collective. He also mentions exceptions. So we're talking about generalities here. So this rejection of Rasulullah on the part of Banu Israel is the human equivalent of Iblis refusing to bow in honor of one whom Allah has honored out of sheer arrogance, stubbornness, and envy, even knowing that it's, tr it's true. That's all it is. Uh, he's Arab. We are, he's, he's from Banu Ismail. We're from Banu Ishaq. Therefore... No, it's, it belongs with us. So, yeah, it's true, but he's not from us, therefore, no. We're better than him. In their words, It's the same thing. So they reject this. No, we're not going to become Muslim. We're not going to give bayah. We're not going to do any of that. Even if we know it's true. Kaab gives the second option. Kaab ibn Asad al-Qurali says, if you refuse that, then let us slay our wives and children. This is pretty drastic. Let us, he's saying literally, let us kill our wives and children and we, the men, go out to Muhammad and fight him. So if we fight him, we're not going to die leaving behind any offspring to worry about. And if we live, uh, we can always find more women and children. That was the second option. So they said, you want us to kill these masakim, yeah, these, the women and children? What good is life after that? Why, why go on living if we do that? 
They rejected that option. And so he comes to the third option. He says, if you refuse that, then tonight is Saturday Eve. And it's Friday after Asr. What's, co what's coming up? The Sabbath. is Saturday Eve. And perhaps he and his companions will feel safe from us. Why? Because it's a Sabbath and they don't do anything. They don't, they don't work or engage in anything. So they'll think that we're resting on the Sabbath. We'll take that opportunity to catch them by surprise and attack them. We'll leave the women and children, but we'll take the Sabbath as an opportunity to let them think we're resting, and then we mount a, secret, a surprise attack. And they said, you want us to break the Sabbath and do what no one else before us has done except that they were deformed? They didn't accept that either. So he gives them three options. He didn't give them a fourth. And after presenting the three options and having all three of them soundly rejected, he said in frustration, By God, since the day your mothers have given birth to you, none of you have ever made a sound decision in your lives. That's what he said, in frustration towards his own people. So at this stage, we get to the pleading part. The pleading part, uh, what happens is Banu Quraidha, they send out Shas ibn Qais to the Prophet as a representative of the tribe in order to plead with the Prophet. He says, O oh Muhammad, give to us what you gave to Banu Nadir. Meaning, you can take our lands, just allow us to take our property, you know, our money, our camels, our family, and so we'll go, like Banu Nadir went, we'll take our stuff too. The Prophet ﷺ said, no. Then he goes back to the tribe and inside the compound tells them he said no. He comes back out a little while later with a new request and he says, okay, keep the camels, keep the property, keep all of the amwal, just let us go. Just us. We'll, we'll leave everything behind. Property as well as belongings. Just let us go. And the Prophet ﷺ said, No, we will only accept an unconditional surrender. And now we come to a very interesting phase in this holdout. And that is in the story of a Sahabi. And how many of you have been inside of the Rawda? Most of you have had a physical contact with the place where this Sahabi had physical contact in a very special story. And that is the story of Abu Lubaba. Abu Lubaba, he is from the Aus, so he has a history with Banu Quraidah because they were allies. And Banu Quraidah asked for Abu Lubaba to come inside of the compound as a kind of intercessor, someone they could talk to, who could present their case and he could be the go-between. So they call for Abu Lubaba to come inside and talk with them. And the Prophet ﷺ agreed and told Abu Lubaba to go inside. He goes inside. So Abu Lubaba, who's Abd uh, ibn al-Mundhir, uh, Abd al-Mundhir, is Ausi, and he goes inside to negotiate with them and talk. Now, what do we know about Abu Lubaba? Abu Lubaba was a Badri, 
although he didn't get to actually fight at Badr, because although he was there physically, he was sent on an errand just before the fighting broke out. But he still received the reward and the share and the ajr of being a Badri because that was his niyyah. So he was there at Badr, he's there at Uhud. So he has a track record of being a solid, righteous, sincere individual. He's loyal. He's not from the Munafiqeen. He's not from the Murjifin. He's not from any of these people on the sidelines. He's firm. So he goes inside and they are so happy to see him because they have history, you know. And when they see him, they're thinking, okay, maybe we can work something out. We talk to him and he can take our case and plead it to, the, to, to, to Muhammad, as they would say. And we can get out of this situation. So they're so happy to see him. And as he comes inside the compound and he's narrating this, his heart begins to soften at home. It's not softening towards the men who were who part of this and conspired. It was just towards the women and the children because these women and children are all crying and sobbing and they're pulling at his clothes and saying, come on, please, please, please beg for us. You know, let's get out of the situation. So he has history with them. He also has a heart, you know. And these are women and children, so he feels bad for them. So as he's feeling like the feeling, having these feelings, they ask him, Ya Aba Lubaba, do you think we should agree and give into Muhammad's terms? Which is what? Unconditional surrender. So, you know, in this moment, he's feeling quite moved and he has a big slip. It wasn't even intentional, but he felt so bad about it. In that moment, he said, yes. And he made this signal with his hand across his throat. You see the problem here? Because he knew what the end game was. And he didn't mean to divulge that. But he was just in, in the emotional moment. He said, yes. But then when he gave that signal, passing his hand like this, there's a great risk now that they're going to resist that because... Who wants to voluntarily surrender for that? That would maybe harden their resolve and lengthen the siege and becomes a bigger problem. So as soon as he does that, he realizes what he did. And he says in the hadith, he relates the event. He says, my two feet had not yet moved from where they were when I realized that I had betrayed Allah and the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa because by doing that, he's almost encouraging them not to yield to the condition, to not come out of the compound. He said, then I left them and I went down with tears flowing from my eyes. He comes out of the compound. He doesn't go to the Prophet He actually goes directly to the masjid. He walks those two hours or so all the way back to Medina. He goes inside of the masjid. He finds one of the pillars made out of the uh, the date palm trunks, and he ties himself to the pillar very firmly, and he says, Wallahi, I will neither taste food nor drink until I die, or unless Allah turns to me in tawbah for what I have done. He took a vow as well, that he would never step foot in the area of Banu Qurayla again. He would never go in that area, that vicinity ever and that he would never be seen in a place where he betrayed Allah and his messenger. Now, Rasulullah is at Banu Qurayza. Now, eventually the word travels, and he finds out what 
happened with Abu Lubaba and him tying himself up at the masjid. And he said, had he come to me, I would have made dua and prayed for his forgiveness. Very simple. It was an inadvertent error. But because he's done what he's done, I'm not the one who's able to release him until Allah turns to him in tawbah. The vow has to be fulfilled. And that vow is only fulfilled if there's wahi coming down revealing that Allah has accepted the tawbah. So he has to wait for that. This became a test. So Abu Lubaba, is, uh, he's later reflecting and he says, I spent several days and it became very hot. This is the winter, but you know, it's Arabia. You can get hot days in the winter as well. The weather turned from being very windy and cold to being very hot. And he says, I spent very many days in this severe heat without eating or drinking. And I said to myself, I'll just stay like this until I leave the dunya or Allah turns to me in tawbah. And maybe we have to put a stop to the story because of uh, a dukhala. So he, he, he sees a dream. And in the dream, he finds himself in stinking mud, stuck. He's unable to get out of it. Uh, he's almost dying from the smell. And then he sees a running river that he was able to get into and bathe and get clean. So he tells this to Abu Bakr al-Siddiq radiallahu anhu, who is known for his dream interpretation. And he says, you're going to experience something painful and distressing, and soon you'll be delivered from it. That's the ta'wil. You're in the swamp, the stinking swamp, and you can't get out. That's the distressing part. Getting into the clean river and cleaning yourself, that's the relief part. So he says, I remember what he said while I was tied to the pillar. And I hope that Allah would reveal that he turned to me in tawbah. So he was like this for six nights, tied to the, the palm of this, the, the, the trunk. And his wife would come and untie the rope so he could make salat. And then she would tie him back up. So he's standing like this, day in and day out, except for salat and making wudu and whatnot. So the daughter would bring him dates to break his fast. And he would chew the date that he would spit it out saying, Wallahi, I can't swallow them. Because I'm afraid that Allah won't turn to me in tawbah. So finally, after six days, Allah Ta'ala revealed a verse in the Quran, uh, forgiving Abu Lubaba. And... This ayah is in Surah At-Tawbah. Allah Ta'ala says, وَآخَرُونَ اعْتَرَفُوا بِذُنُوبِهِمْ خَلَطُوا عَمَلًا صَالِحًا وَآخَرَ سَيِّئًا عَسَى اللَّهُ أَنْ يَتُوبَ عَلَيْهِمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ غَفُورٌ رَحِيمٌ And there are others who acknowledge their sins and they've mixed righteous deeds with evil deeds and maybe, maybe Allah will turn to them in repentance. In the Asa, in the Quran, means it will happen. Uh, it may be Allah turns to him, them in repentance. Indeed, Allah's offer giving him merciful. That was revealed when the Prophet ﷺ was in the house of Umm Salama. This is six days later. And she says she heard him reciting this verse. And he was laughing with joy after he received it. And, she, and he told her. And she said, should I not go out and inform Abu Lubaba? And he says, if you want to, you can do that. She goes outside of the apartment and she shouts, Ya Abu Lubaba, uh, Allah has pardoned you. Shall I not give you the glad tidings? And then people are hearing this word is spreading and they rush to go and untie him. He says, no. Only until I'm untied by Rasulullah Only if he unties me, 
will I leave this spot? And then he's untied and released. And he says, Ya Rasulullah, a part of my tawbah is I will never step foot in Banu Quraidha again. And I also give up all of my possessions and give all of them as sadaqah lillahi wa li rasulihi sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam says to him, it's enough that you give thuluth a third. That's enough. And so he gives a thuluth. So that's the story of Abu Lubaba. We haven't actually come to Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh. That's next week. That is where we continue in this incident of the Ghazwa of Banu Quraidha. Wallahu wa rasuluhu a'lam wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Yeah, so there's the pillar, right, I meant to say that, but the kids were distracting. Um, I can't remember the number, but the pillars are numbered. And this pillar is inside of the rawda. Uh, if you, okay, if, you have, if you've been inside and you have the visual in your mind, you know where the green grill is to the left, where the hujra is. So you're inside of the, the rawda, you have the mimbar here, you have the hujra there with the green uh, shabaka. Then you have... You have a pillar here and then a pillar here, like towards, towards the back. That second one. That second one is the pillar of Abu Lubaba. So if you pray there, you're literally on the spot where he tied himself up. Yeah. <laughs>